Okay, we are here. We are live and we are ready to go. Thank you for joining me today. Here on New Hope Radio and the Hope Club Podcast, we're going to begin a series of messages that, I'll tell you what, I think they can really give us a better perspective toward life. That's good. You know why? (laughs) Perspective is everything. Wouldn't you say? Perspective is the window that we look through to uh, make choices. Choices determine destinies. So we're going to have a series of messages that are going to reveal the grace of God in someone whom the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. Hmm, what do you think that person is? Well, I'll give you a little description. He was handsome. He's a redhead. Beautiful eyes. The youngest of eight sons, which made him insignificant by sight. His name was David. I like that name. (laughs) Here's the world David was born into. People were drifting away from God. Has that always been the case or what? Seems like the case today too, doesn't it? Okay, so on the scene, we have Samuel. And who is Samuel? Samuel is the last of the judges, okay? And um, at this time, he was rather elderly. He was an old man. So here's old Samuel... Ah, doing the best he can to judge Israel. The present generation had not personally known the great days of Israel. And when Samuel was young and strong and in his prime, just like I think today our young Americans, they too have not known the strength of a country. They're trying to change it. They forget what it was built upon. And what makes our nation so great? Turning from the roots, turning from the landmarks, it's not good. So the Jewish people, they forgot that Samuel, in his prime, had subdued the Philistines. He judged the land wisely. And we pick it up in 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. It came about when Samuel was old, that he appointed his son's judges over Israel. Okay, so his two boys, they're going to, like, take over. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after, uh uh-oh, dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. I'm like, what? These guys are supposed to be the government of Israel. And what are they doing? They've taken bribes, perverted justice. Hmm. And this poor leadership, it caused the people to become disillusioned. And they no longer wanted to be ruled by the judges. They wanted a king. 
So in verse 5, they said to Samuel, Behold, oh, you've grown old, and your sons, they don't walk in your ways. Appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. So they gave three reasons why they wanted a king. Number one, Samuel was old. Number two, his sons, they really walked away from God. Number three, they wanted to be like other nations. So here, the majority rules, but the majority is wrong. In verse 6, Samuel did what everybody should do when they have a problem. The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel, here he comes, prayed to the Lord. I like that. He prayed to the Lord. See, we should always make a connection with problem and prayer. Do you know that there is a prayer for every problem? Yep. You get a problem, there's a prayer. You can pray about it. You can bring it to God. See what God will do. So, the people chose a man. His name was Saul. Oh, Saul, right? Put him on the cover of GQ. Tall, dark, and handsome. Head and shoulders above everybody else. He looked so good on the outside. Yeah, there's the guy. But he had some shortfalls. He was hot-tempered. That's no good for a leader. Hot-tempered can disqualify a leader. Okay? Because you got too much power to be hot-tempered. Secondly, Saul was given to seasons of depression. Thirdly, he had a murderous mind. See, Saul was not known for having a strong relationship with God, but he was the people's choice. That's why here in our country, when I think about voting for people, you know what I look at? I look at the morality of the individual. I look at their morality. Um, not necessarily that they have to be born again. It'd be great if they were, but we don't have enough Christians running for office. But you look at the <clears throat> morality of the individual. I don't look at the economy. I look at the morality. Because that person's going to make decisions from their heart. Okay? And today, in our nation, we have a very immoral form of government. It's not good. It's going to backfire. So, though the people asked God for a king, he granted their request. He said, okay, if that's it. It's like, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. But the great thing about God, he did not abandon them when things fell apart. You know, God gave them what they wanted, even though it was a bad choice. But God didn't say, hey, you're on your own now. Even though Saul was a failure, God was still there for his people. I like that. That's the grace of God. Now, later on, in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel said to King Saul, You acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment the Lord gave you. If you had, you would have remained king. But now your kingdom will not endure. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. You see how important it is for a leader to be in touch with God? I don't, you can be the leader of a company, 
You can be the leader of a team. You can be the leader of a family. You can be the leader of a nation. How important it is to be in touch with God. So now Saul's in trouble. Oh, yeah. You see, when the people sought a leader, they looked upon his physical stature. When God seeks a leader, he looks upon the man's spiritual stature. Because why? That's where you live life from. You don't live life from the outside of who you are. You live life from the inside of who you are. First Samuel sixteen seven. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And God is still in the business of choosing people to use today, and he's still looking at hearts. He is. Even though it's an Old Testament scripture, Second Chronicles 16.9, let me tell you something. It's still true today. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Let me ask you, who does your heart belong to? Does your heart belong to God? I mean, like, completely, like it says. Is your heart completely his? Or maybe, well, you know, God, you can have a little piece of my heart. Kind of like Janis Joplin saying, there's a piece of my heart. Had a lot of songs going on this week. Yesterday we had the Guess Who. She's come undone. Today we got Janis Joplin, piece of my heart. Does God have a piece of your heart? Or does God have all of your heart? That's the difference. Three priorities God uses to appoint his servant leaders. Number one, spirituality. That means a connection with God. See, we're talking about the difference between people choosing a leader and God choosing a leader. When people choose a leader, ah, they don't go by that. When God chooses a leader, spirituality. Are they connected with me? Secondly, piety. What is piety? It's devotion. Devotion to God. Are they devoted to God? That means through thick and thin at all times. And then thirdly, God uses and he looks for humility. And what is that? That's reliance on God. So these are the priorities that God uses when he chooses servant leaders. Spirituality, connection with God. Piety, devotion to God. Humility, reliance on God. These are the makings of God's servant leaders. A question. How do you know if you have the heart of a servant? That's a good question. How do you know? You know, we're supposed to have servants' hearts, right? How do you know if you have the heart of a servant? You know how you know? How do you feel when somebody treats you like one? <laughs> how do you feel when somebody treats you like a servant? That'll tell you if you have a heart of a servant. If you go along with it, because you get a servant's heart. If you're like, hey, who do you think you're talking to? Then you, you, <laughs> you don't have a servant's heart. That's how you respond. So now, the thrust of the message today is God's schoolhouse of learning. You realize every time you walk out your door to face the day, you're walking into God's classroom. And there are all kinds of things that are waiting for you that God wants to school you. He wants to tutor you and teach you how to become Christ-like. So he allows all these lessons to come into your life. And some of them we don't like. 
You know, when I was in high school, I didn't like Algebra 2. I struggled with Algebra 2. I didn't like physics. I hated physics. And there are things in life that we go through that we don't like, but they're good lessons, and we have to learn the lessons. So God has certain training methods that he uses to prepare his people for leadership. Now enter David. Remember the little redhead? The eighth brother? The eighth son of eight brothers? David was being trained for God's leadership role by doing what? What was his job when he was young? He was a shepherd. By doing the work of a shepherd. Now, shepherd's work was lonely and monotonous. It was. But it was a fourfold training ground for David. Sometimes, the, the, and we're going to see this today, the simple monotonous things of life prepare us for the greater things. So here's some things that made up shepherding. Number one, solitude. You know, solitude is something we have to learn to deal with. The ability to be alone with yourself in order to resolve your inner conflicts. How do you handle solitude? Sometimes get all, some people get all bent out of shape because they think solitude is wrong. Oh, there's something wrong. I'm in solitude. No. Maybe it's a time for introspection. Maybe it's a time to learn to be alone with yourself or with God, away from people, away from hustle and bustle. See, this is where David learned to be king. Solitude was one of the teachers that God used to train David for the throne. And let me tell you, any of you that are in ultimate leadership, you know, it's lonely. You know that. It's lonely up there because people don't see what you see. And you have to learn how to deal with that loneliness. The second thing that David learned, obscurity. This is the place where character is built. Obscurity. Great men and women of God. You know how they begin? Unknown, unseen, unappreciated, and unapplauded. And I can name a few. Gideon. Gideon went on to be a great army general, right? But when he began, where was he? Hiding in a cave, fearful. We find Moses. He was hiding too in Midian. Small obscurity. But look at him. You know who Moses became? Moses became Moses. How cool is that? (laughs) Hey, how about Mary, the mother of Jesus? A simple girl in a poor village. Nazareth? Where's that? And yet look at God favored her and gave her the beautiful privilege of bringing the Savior into the world. Even the disciples, everyday men, common men, unlearned, unschooled, right? And they all became great. David, a shepherd boy. So obscurity is the place that we begin. Those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified the applause of popularity. Sometimes people want to jump right into the popularity. But they avoid the obscurity. No. 
No, learn to handle obscurity, and then you'll learn how to handle popularity. Because popularity can be, oh, it can destroy you. Oh, yeah, it can be your ends. That's why you got to learn to handle obscurity. So we've got, here's school teacher number one, solitude. School teacher number two, obscurity. Remember, this is as a shepherd boy. Oh, number three, monotony. Yep, monotony. This is being faithful in the, here it comes, menial, insignificant, routine, regular, unexciting, and uneventful daily tasks of life. In other words, the things that we have to do every day, over and over and over, we would call them monotonous, right? You got to do the dishes every day. You got to do your laundry every week. Got to mow the lawn every week. You got to go to work every day. There are things that we do. Got to brush your teeth every day, a few times, I hope, right? Got to take a shower, I hope, every day. You know, it's, it's like every day we have to do these things and they're just routine. You have to learn to handle routine. You can call it monotony. Here's David in the field, right? What's he doing? Watching the ship, watching the sheep. That's it. He's probably carving out some little flutes to entertain himself and the sheep. He's probably looking for little round stones that he can put in his pouch in case he has to face any giants or any wolves or bears or lions or tigers. You know, he's he, he does things to occupy himself, but he doesn't see monotony as an enemy. He doesn't. And maybe your job is monotonous. I remember when I was in high school, I had a summer job in a jewelry factory, 16 years old, and I had to work a foot press. Talk about monotony. So you put these little, you know, like links of a bracelet together. You put them on this little pin and you kick the foot press and this thing comes down and smashes them together. And you really have to pay attention because there were more than one time where my finger was where the jewelry should have been. And boom, that thing came down, smashed my finger. And I was like, woo. So, so monotony is really something you cannot daydream with. You can't float off into la-la land when you're doing something monotonous. You got to focus. You got to keep your eye on the ball. Make sure you know what you're doing. Okay. Monotony. Here's another time. You want to know my life story? Another time, years later, I was working. I was learning to build houses and framing and finish work and stuff. And I had a monotonous job. I had to cut these little boards on a table saw, hundreds of them. They were little things, maybe six inches I don't even, I don't remember why. And I'm zip, 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 and I'm just running them through. And then what happened? I drifted off into La La Land. And one zip became one voop, and that voop was my thumb. And the thumb went right over the table saw blade. Didn't cut it off, praise the Lord. But it put a nice gash. I still have the scar today. Ripped that thing right open. Oh, yeah. Drove, drove myself to the hospital, got stitches, I'm back to work. The point is, monotony is that which trains us. It sharpens us. Don't let monopoly, (laughs) that's another story, monopoly. Don't let monotony be your downfall. Use it. Use it to sharpen yourself. Okay. You know what we call this? 
Life. Life. Monotony is life without a break. And that's the reality. Life. L-I-F-E. Life. One, one, I, I like this. <clears throat> one man said, life is like flying a plane. It's hours and hours of monotony punctured by, or punctuated by sheer panic. <laughs> and that's about it, right? So here's the pilot. He's steering the plane and just flying through the air for hours, nothing going on. And every once in a while, something happens, turbulence, a seagull, something, and panic strikes. But other than that, it's monotonous. That's life. So you make the best of your monotony and use it to sharpen yourself. And then the fourth teacher David had, reality. This is courage that comes from knowing, here it comes, God is with you. Is that your reality? Do you have that? Do you live in the reality that God is with you? I hope so. You know why? Because he is. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 34, remember when nobody was going to fight the giant? Even Saul, biggest guy in town, right? He wasn't going to fight him. So David shows up and says, I'll, I'll, I'll fight that guy. I'm not afraid of him. Saul says, no, man, you're too little. You're just a kid. You can't go fight him. And you know what David said? He said, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, and you know what I did? I went after him. Oh, yeah. And I attacked him. And I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I grabbed him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Wow. So David said, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. I'm like, ouch. Wow. Where did David get his courage? He got it because he walked with God. So we've got two lessons from God's schoolhouse of learning today. Number one, it's in the little things and the lonely places that we prove ourselves capable of the bigger things. Did you get that? It's in the little things and the lonely places that we prove ourselves capable of the bigger things. So don't despise those times. Number two, not number two, still number one. If you want to be a person with a large vision, you must cultivate the habit of doing the little things well. The little things. And detailed reports, daily assignments, homework, chores. If you're going to sweep the floor, don't skip the corners. Do everything. You know, do everything you do well. Are all a reflection of whether you personally are learning to be some type of leader in your life. The little details mean so much. The test of one's calling is not how they're doing when the spotlight is on them, but when no one is looking. And that's when David shined, when no one was looking. And the second lesson, when God develops our inner qualities, he's never in a hurry. You know, though David was anointed king, he spent many more years in the field before he was given the throne. 
It wasn't like, okay, he didn't go shopping for royal clothes. No, he went back to the sheep. He had more things to learn. One man said, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. That's so true, isn't it? We get saved in a second. Boom! But it's a process to become like Christ. It's a process. That's why don't give up. Don't quit. Every day. It's just one step. Just one step closer. That's all. So our lesson today, do not be afraid of God's working in your life. He will prepare you for greater things. And we don't know what those greater things are. It doesn't mean life in the limelight. It could be you will be very important in the life of a person. Or maybe your grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, or nieces, nephews, maybe your own children. I don't know. But greatness waits for those that trust in God. And great it's not the worldly kind of greatness we're talking about. It's greatness in the eyes of God. Having a heart after God, that's greatness. And it's in the schoolhouse of solitude and obscurity that we learn to become men and women of God. It is from the schoolmasters of monotony and reality that we learn to be kings and queens under God's calling. That's how we become like David. Men and women after God's own heart. That's how we become. See, process. Now, next time we're together, we'll continue with this theme. And something we know, but I think we need to be reminded of, God always has a plan. I like that. I need to be reminded of that. God, like, you know, he doesn't, oh, no, what am I going to do now? (laughs) God always has a plan. He always knows what he's going to do. Now, we don't know what he's going to do. And many times we think we know and then we're wrong. But he always, so we rest in that. We can rest in the fact that God knows what he's going to do. How important is that? That is vital to our Christian walk.